But whenever God heals anybody, or, or God does something unusual, extraordinary, special divine action for any of us, it's, it's, it's a gift to all of us, because it's a reminder that God hasn't forgotten his promise of a day when there's not going to be any more sickness, there's not going to be any more death. God is going to wipe away all tears from our eyes, and all things will be made new. It's watering time, everybody! It's time for Apollos Watered! A podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today in our show, we're having another one of our... Deep Conversations. Have you ever heard someone say, It's a miracle! You know, most of us have probably said it at one time or another, and if we haven't said it, then we have definitely heard it. But let's be honest. Usually, we are talking about an insane catch or shot in a game. There are some who apply miracles to the everyday, like witnessing a spectacular sunset or the birth of a new baby. And these are undoubtedly crazy, fulfilling, even life-changing moments. But are they really miracles? I mean, seriously? Most Christians say they believe in miracles. Most Christians in the West, though, never expect them and live like they don't exist. Today, we are beginning a deep conversation with Craig Keener, who is New Testament professor at Asbury Theological Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky, and author of more articles and books, many of them commentaries, than I can count. As you will soon realize from our conversation, Dr. Keener is one of the smartest people you will ever encounter. He is a meticulous scholar and researcher, and he is respected around the world in New Testament studies. And today, we're going to be talking to him about his latest book, Miracles Today. Do miracles really happen today? And what is a miracle anyway? I mean, we need to have a definition, or anything can become a miracle. Why does it seem that the stories of miracles always happen across the world, but not here in the West? And what do we do when the miraculous doesn't happen. All of that and more in this fascinating conversation. Happy listening. Craig Keener, welcome to Apollos Watered. Great to be with you, Apollos. <laughs> I don't know. Let's not go there. <laughs> I am not Apollos, but we can we, we can have Apollos watered. So are you ready for the fast five? I guess we'll find out. You went to Duke and you live in Kentucky. So here we go. Duke Blue Devils or the Kentucky Wildcats? Oh boy. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I spend most of my time doing research. I knew I was going to flunk the five. I, I So I don't really actually... Um, yeah, you're not a sports guy. You're not, not a, sports, a guy. sports guy. Sorry, that's okay. But you put no. There's nothing to be sorry about. But you mentioned <laughs> Blue Devils in the Blue Devils in the book. Yeah. You mentioned it yeah. in the book. I, I do. Yeah, I do. Sort of root for them, but not because of their name, Blue Devils. It actually was named after <laughs> World War II squadron. I don't know where they got their name, but yeah. 
I know this one you'll be able to answer because you've traveled around the world. So the strangest food you've ever eaten. I, I guess my favorite of the strangest was some green bread in Indonesia. I really like green that. bread, like green yeah. eggs and ham kind of thing. Like, what are we talking about I, here? Green bread. I assume it was vegetable bread of some sort, but maybe it was food coloring. But yeah, I liked it. <laughs> green bread. I'll have to yeah. look that up. You've traveled around and you're a professor, but what is the funniest cross-cultural experience you've ever had? Oh, now this one is actually, well, it's funny in retrospect, but it, it actually didn't come from teaching per se. It was after my wife and I got married. My, my wife is from Congo, Brazzaville. I would say, je t'aime, I love you. Yeah. And instead of saying, je t'aime wa aussi, I love you too, she would say, merci, thank you. And I, and I walked through like, no, my wife is nothing. And, and she was like, why is he so sad? And, and you know, you didn't, you wouldn't realize that culture actually goes down to things like that. But, but yeah, I mean, in her, in her culture, the appropriate response is gratitude. Whereas in our culture, what you expect is reciprocity. It was just a cultural difference. And, you know, once we understood it, we were able to fix it. But yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's kind of funny and sad at the same yeah it was sad at the time <laughs> but okay now let's get to the professor part of it what's the funniest classroom moment not necessarily intercultural but what's the funniest classroom moment you've ever had i can think of the most embarrassing one. Okay, well let's go with that let's go with the most embarrassing classroom moment i'm all for that <laughs> when i was uh starting to teach i i um i was getting frustrated because I felt like some of the students weren't getting it, how important it is to not just use the Bible to decorate your sermons, but to actually take your message from Scripture. Yeah. And, and I said, look, if you're not going to respect the Bible enough to take your message from the Bible, then you may as well just, you know, quit pretending that you have the authority of Scripture when you speak. Mm. And one of my students said, you are the most arrogant person I have ever met. <laughs> it was good, good to bring me down a few notches. <laughs> they, they said that in class? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did you respond? Because that's not funny. That I mean, that's funny, but it's... Well, that's why I said it was embarrassing. I had to, I had to, yeah, had to um, learn a bit more humility, but... <laughs> oh, yeah. I still believe I, I, we need to work from the Bible, but I have to find gracious ways i guess to communicate that <laughs> okay if you were a restaurant what restaurant would you be and why i usually go to subway it's the quickest restaurant in town quick and it needs to be healthy and it needs to be affordable and well so we only have a handful of restaurants in town there is another restaurant that's really actually there's a couple a couple others there's a Chinese restaurant, they grow their own vegetables. So that's impressive. Mm. And there is another restaurant in town that is, um, it, it's a bit, you know, higher notch. It's called Solomon's Porch. And, oh. and, and they they do a really good job. And they ha they actually have like um, ser Servetus burgers that are slightly well done. They have uh, Calvin sandwiches, Wesley sandwiches, <laughs> the C.S. Lewis. You know, they have, I mean, it's really... Uh, kind of, kind of interesting. It tells you something about this being a, a college and seminary town. But anyway, <laughs> Servita sandwiches, like well done. 
Cause yeah. Because like he was like burned, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so bad. Yeah. What is it like an Isaiah sandwich that's cut in half? I mean, what, what are we doing? What are we doing this? Yeah. Oh, okay. But, but, well, but see, I'm a I'm a night person, and these are, you know, they're only open till till two p.m. usually, so I I don't get there very much. Despite the theological interest. <laughs> well, then, let's. Well, as we're talking about that, you're a night guy. You mentioned that actually in your book, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Is your book Miracles today? Um, and I, I was very interested in this book because, and we talked about this a little bit in the kind of pre-show walkthrough, um, because there is a movement of the Spirit of God. We know that most people do believe in miracles, but there is a, a part of the world that really doesn't, and it's even within the church, even though the New Testament's filled with them. But why did you write this book, which is actually something you had written about about 10 years ago in a two-volume set? This is a smaller book. But tell us the reason why this book or how this book came to be. Well, the, the two-volume set, it's like 1,100 pages, and it was too detailed for most people. I mean, you'd have people online quoting it uh, who were, you know, like, yes, this proves our case. And other people saying, no, this book is trash. And mm -hmm. you could tell by reading what they were saying online that neither of, of them had actually read it. Well, you know, it's 1,100 pages. <laughs> it was kind That's of a, a lot big, of book, yeah. Yeah. So I thought, okay, a smaller version would help. But also I had so many more cases that I could talk about. You know, so I wanted something more readable. I wanted something uh, shorter and far less expensive. And Baker Academic did a great job with this in terms of making it affordable. And then I also wanted to update it. So like 70% of the material is new. I didn't spend as much time on philosophy of science. I kind of summarize that the first book i had to spend so many <laughs> i had to spend so long acquainting myself more with philosophy of science uh, philosophy of history that was closer to what i do and then um, anthropology that was that was fine it was the philosophy of science part that was really uh, stretched my brain but th this one you know I, I i summarize those more and just go for the um, kind of the evidence uh, that, that that we have um, where we have medical documentation and where we have multiple independent witnesses and and so forth. Well, so what was the original impetus behind the two volume set that you wrote in 2011? It was a footnote. It I was I was working on my my four volume Acts commentary, which now also there's a condensed version with Cambridge, but the Four volume was with Baker Academic. Uh, it's 4,500 pages. And I was dealing with the historical reliability of Acts. And I got to the question, you know, the, the objection that is often raised, well, how can you say it's historically reliable when it recounts miracles? Eyewitnesses would never talk about this. And I'm like, you guys have no idea. <laughs> mm. I, and so I, I said, well, what I'll do, I'll just, for this footnote saying uh, this objection is clearly wrong. Eyewitnesses do report things like this, uh, however you want to explain them. I was, I was going to just go find a, a few books that just listed a number of these uh, eyewitness cases, medical documentation, and so on. 
Um, eventually, I did find some. There was a really good, um, actually, master's thesis, but it was on dissertation level from them from like 1980 something, and a number of other works. Um, one, one, a couple by doctors. Uh, one of them actually had the medical documentation in the book uh, from the from the 70s and 80s, but I wasn't finding initially as much as I'd hoped. I was finding an account here, an account there, and I just started compiling them and the footnote grew and grew. And after a couple hundred pages, we decided maybe it should be a separate book. <laughs> so, so you're saying you're doing this commentary on Acts and that led you to want to understand miracles that were happening in the contemporary world that were documented? Yeah. Yeah, because I, I wanted to show that the, the claim that eyewitnesses never claim this stuff is simply false. And you, you can't say that nobody would have claimed this back then. If we have other reason to trust the sources, there's that you can't say this stuff didn't happen back then when you have eyewitnesses claiming this stuff today. So mm. there's no reason to say this couldn't go back to eyewitness sources back then. Mm. It doesn't prove that it does, but it also disproves the very misinformed idea that, that it couldn't. Well, then let's let's start with that then. You know, we're being in the West here. We always want to give a definition, especially when we're talking about miracles, because there are different definitions. The sun rises every morning. That's a miracle. We've heard those kind of things. <laughs> but describe a miracle or define a miracle in the way you're using it so that we might understand going forward further. Yeah, that's kind of the problem. It's likely um, th there are so many definitions of it. And so... <sighs> The historic definition was a special act of God. So not just his ordinary working that he does on a regular basis, but something different from that that's dramatic enough to cause awe, to get people's attention for what God is doing, uh, since they often don't pay attention to his regular working, which actually is often, you know, I mean, it's greater a greater sign. But mm -hmm. uh, no. Since David Hume, in uh, he was a, a Scottish philosopher a few centuries ago, he's the way he defined it. He tried to define miracles out of existence, so he didn't have to really offer an argument. He just, uh, well, at least the the basis of his argument at the beginning: miracles violate natural law, and then he defined natural law as what can't be violated, and therefore said miracles can't happen. Um, that's that's a loaded definition, obviously. Yeah, it is. But if you, and then and then you say, well, what happens if you've got evidence that this has happened? He said, well, the witnesses aren't reliable. <laughs> so, you know, it ends up being a completely circular argument. Most miracles in the Bible can't really be defined as violations of natural law. I mean, you, you've got the virgin birth, you've got Jesus' resurrection to a new order of existence. I mean, those the creation in the beginning, those would not fit, you know, normal natural law. But I mean, a lot of things in the Bible actually are not violations of natural law. Somebody sick getting healed isn't a violation of natural law to speak. People get healed all the time. Somebody being dead for a long time and getting raised, well, that that is uh, the only really long one we have, though, is, is the four days with Lazarus. But anyway, <clears throat> so... I went after Hume, uh, Hume's essay, especially in the first book. And then 
showed how that really doesn't work. And his essay is really abysmal. I mean, philosophers have been critiquing it for a long time. And most of the, not all, but most of the responses to Hume's essays on miracles, essay on miracles have been very negative. It was, it was written early, I think, and he didn't even follow his usual epistemic approach mm. in that. So, I mean, it contradicts his own, his own usual way of reasoning. And so anyway, getting back to your question about uh, how I would define it. Between God's ordinary working and special divine action, you know, you may not know exactly where the boundaries are, but you can kind of tell certain key examples fit this or that. Just like Samson had long hair before he had a bad hair day with uh, his barber. And, you know, some of us uh, are a little bit challenged. Yeah. Our... <laughs> we have the same barber. We have the same hairstyle. Yeah. <laughs> So I mean, between between say a Nazarite with long hair and somebody bald like maybe Elisha uh, in the Bible, uh, was it Second uh, Kings two? Mm -hmm. We've got uh, you. You can get a clear example. So uh, saying that we 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 see the sun rising daily that is God's regular working. Uh, somebody getting raised from the dead after being dead for an hour. That is what we would call special divine action. Hmm. So the special divine action outside of what we normally see in a day-to-day. -day. Right. Okay. Why is it so important to keep the miraculous alive in our mind today, especially since most people don't discount miracles? But that being said, as I said at the onset of this, you have some within our, our faith say that this doesn't happen anymore. Even though the New Testament is filled with it, they said, okay, that was for then, it's not for now, it all ended, you don't see it through church history. You say, no, that's not true. No, that's not true. You do see it through church history. Um, and, and you don't find anywhere in the Bible that leads you to expect it's going to cease. And just if you're just reading the Bible on its own, you're going to expect this is normal. Mm -hmm. And then how do, you, how do you explain the fact that we don't see things more often, uh, at least here in the West? And I think there are a number of reasons for that. I mean, the, the first book especially was written primarily to refute anti-supernaturalism. So it was towards Humean skepticism. It wasn't towards cessationism, the idea that, that miracles have ceased. And really the second book is, is oriented that way too. But having said that, again, there's no biblical grounds for saying it ceased. But I remember I was converted from atheism, from completely unchurched atheism. And when I came into the church, <clears throat> well, I, you know, I had to humble myself, <laughs> eat, eat humble pie, recognize that, oh boy, I've been wrong. I've been saying the wrong thing for all these years. There is a God. And because um, I had an encounter with him, that was how I was converted. But then I, I still kind of had this bias like, well, God can do spiritual things, but I don't think he actually does anything physical. At least I don't expect to see anything physical. And then when I saw a few things physical, that really shook me up. <laughs> that really blew my mind in terms of my worldview. And I'm wondering how many other people are in that kind of, kind of situation. Go back for a moment. 
you said you encountered God. That was your conversion. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, now I encountered God through the gospel. Often God will do signs and wonders to get people's attention. We have reports of that all over the world. But in my case, um, some people brought me the gospel. They were probably cessationists themselves. How old were you at this time? I was 15. Okay. So they stopped me on the street uh, to, to share Christ with me. They explained to me how to be made right with God from the Bible. I said, look, you guys, I don't believe in the Bible. I'm an atheist. Uh, I've been an atheist. At 15 years old. At 15 years old. So what year, yeah. what year are we talking here and where are we? This is 1975 in Ohio, in northern Ohio. And okay. I... I had been an atheist, I think, at least since age nine. I thought I could explain the universe purely naturalistically. Um, at age nine. When I was nine, I thought I was a transformer. Oh. So, <laughs> I mean, the idea that you're trying to explain the universe and its origin at the age of nine sets you apart a little bit. So you're into this atheism. You have these guys, yeah. these people stop you on the street, and they they talk to you about being right with God. Then what happens? Yeah. Well, when I was 13, I started reading Plato and his, his arguments about the immortality of the soul. And that got me wondering about meaning and, and so on. And so, you know, I'd, I'd been holding two conflicting worldviews, platonic idealism and pure materialistic naturalism, and hadn't really figured out how to put them together. But one thing I knew I didn't believe was Christianity, because it seemed to me that most people who claimed to be Christian weren't living like they believed in a God. If I believed there was a God, I would give God everything because that would be what mattered most. That would be where meaning actually was. And so anyway, these guys witnessed to me. I argued with them for 45 minutes. I walked home and I experienced an encounter with the Holy Spirit. God was there in the room with me. He wasn't going to let me alone. I had studied different religions. I'd studied different philosophies, but this was actually a person. And I I was like, okay, well, you know, I wanted empirical evidence. This isn't empirical, but, you know, this is like even closer. <laughs> and it's not something that would persuade somebody who was outside of me, but it certainly was persuading me. So I, I said, okay, God, I, I, I have to admit you exist. I don't understand how Jesus dying and how Jesus rising from the dead, how that makes me right with you. But if that's what you're saying, because that's what they told me from the Bible, if that's what you're saying, then I'll believe it. But God, I don't know how to be made right with you. So if you want to make me right with you, I need you to do it yourself. And all of a sudden I felt something rushing through my body like I'd never felt before. I jumped up scared out of my mind. And that was the beginning of my of my Christian life. And then you know, some other interesting things happened after that. But yeah, but that's not something I can just say to somebody else. And I'll say, I'll say oh, that's completely subjective, you know. So uh, I, I go for historical evidence and, and so on. The fact that you were reading Plato at 13 years of age is not, in my experience, the people that I've interacted with, that's not always the normal thing. I mean, you were dealing with higher questions of life, even from the beginning, because God is, is his gifted you in that way and and use you mightily for the kingdom uh to write many commentaries and and again going back to the book about the miraculous 
Why does it seem though today, and you, and you wanted me to come back to this, that we see the miraculous in majority world cultures, but we don't see that in the West? I think there are a few reasons for that. One is, as, as a lot of my African friends say, we need miracles to survive, you know? <laughs> you in the West, God has gifted you. You have health insurance, you have, you have medical technology. Those are God's gifts, we shouldn't overlook them. When Jesus fed the 5,000, that was, that was a miracle. But he also told his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain. They weren't gonna need a miracle for the next meal. God doesn't do miracles just to entertain us. He usually provides for us through, through the means that he's created in the regularity of nature. You know, if you, if you can get a job and you can get health insurance and so on, that's, that's great. Now, also another factor I think is, we see these things most regularly. <laughs> now I'm like talking about a different kind of regularity. Mm -hmm. We see these things most regularly on the cutting edge of evangelism. So I have some friends who they'll go into villages where there's no church. There's, you know, it's completely devoted to another religion, often in a syncretistic way or something, but no, but not Christian. And they will say, show the Jesus film. They'll start preaching. People will start getting miraculously healed while they're preaching. Or they'll say, you know, bring, bring us somebody who's deaf or blind. And of course, the deaf people can't hear it, so somebody in the village has to bring them. But these are people everybody in the village knows is deaf or blind. They get healed, and a church is started there the next day. And this, uh, and I have other other friends who have gone there and seen it. And then there was another, um, there was a group of in, uh, investigators who went there and also witnessed it tested people before and after prayer and found that a number did go from blindness to seeing and deafness to hearing. And that was published in Southern Medical Journal in September of 2010. Mm. And of course, there was a backlash on the internet. But then you go read uh, Candy Gunther Brown, professor at Indiana University. She was one of the authors of the original study. And yeah, testing conditions in rural Mozambique are not ideal. But you read her chapter on that study in her book, Testing Prayer, published by Harvard University Press in 2012, it's pretty clear that this is what happened. So um, on the cutting edge of evangelism, that's kind of like where the kingdom was breaking forth and the gospels and acts. You see it more regularly there. Now, plenty of accounts from other kinds of settings. It's not to say they don't happen elsewhere. Um, and it's a whole lot easier to get medical documentation here in the West than it is, you know, in rural Mozambique or something like that. But, and then, and then I think another factor though is we in our culture have been steeped in anti-supernaturalism and skepticism about it. And Jesus didn't always do things just because of faith. And when he stilled the storm, his disciples like we're perishing. They weren't, they weren't expressing their faith. But but often he'll say your faith has saved you. So there is, I think, something we can really learn from our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. And that actually happened to me because when I started investigating, I was I was thinking, okay, well, you know, I may run across a few stories like, you know, with myself, there was one time where I passed out, I wasn't breathing, I started turning purple, they said. Um, 
They started praying over me. I started breathing again. That was probably just a few seconds, you know. So I, I wasn't, I was expecting to find a few things like that. Uh, but people can recover from that. It doesn't require always uh, special divine action, in a sense. But what I wasn't expecting was to find people who had been clinically dead for more than six minutes and were fine because after six minutes, irreparable brain damage starts in. But we have accounts from, from doctors, uh, medical records for people who were dead for longer than that. Eyewitness accounts even for longer than a, longer than a day, multiple independent eyewitness accounts. Uh, but you know, for medically documented well over an hour. And the one that got my attention though, was actually something my wife shared with me. I didn't know how long the person had been dead. My wife didn't know that. She just had heard the, the story growing up. It actually happened before she was born. So I interviewed the person who was the main eyewitness to that, who was Antoinette Malambe in Congo. And so Antoinette told me the story. Her daughter, Therese, was about two years old. She cried out that she was bitten by a snake. Her mother got to her, found her not breathing. There was no medical help available in the village. So she strapped the child to her back, ran to a nearby village where family friend Coco Ngoma Moise was doing ministry. Coco Moise prayed for the child. The child started breathing again. The next day she was fine. So I asked, how long was it that she wasn't breathing? And Antoinette Malambe had to stop and think, well, they get from this village to that village, uh, this hill, that hill. She said, it's about three hours. Now, that really got my attention. And not just because it was three hours, but also because we know Therese. She has no brain damage. She actually finished uh, a master's degree and um, just retired from, from doing ministry back in Congo. And so it really got my attention, though, because of how close it was. Antoinette Malambe was my mother-in-law. Therese is my sister-in-law. And, well, I mean, these were people of integrity that I knew. Of course, Therese was only two years old. She doesn't remember it. But we did also check, not to that one's mother-in-law, but we did also check with Coco Moise, who also confirmed the, the account. So that got my attention. And, you know, I found other more dramatic things after that, but that one was the one that was close enough to knock me upside the head in terms of my Western presuppositions. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Water, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. 
There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today, because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. When you when you wrote this book, you 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 do talk about miracles, not in the case of like you said, just passing out or turning blue. Not that that can't be that, but more on the dramatic side of limbs increasing uh, in inches. I mean, you you talk about the deaf hearing, the blind seeing, those who are crippled walk. I, and I must confess, there were a couple times where I found myself weeping over j- just reading some of the accounts. Um, Actually, in the book, you talk about RSD, reflex sympathetic dystrophy. Um, And you said it was April 1993 where she had a fatal work accident. By January of 1995, her disability had grown more severe. Her left hand began to claw November, Christmas Eve 1995, was her final complete meal with solid food. And she was confined to a wheelchair by February of 1996. And she stayed in that wheelchair every day for the next 15 years. It was, uh, what was a reflex sympathetic dystrophy, something like that anyway, but she was, she was bent over so far, they had to actually enlarge the door to get her through. And yeah, she suffered for a long time. So yeah, the, the stories in the book, the, you know, there's stories of, of God doing miracles, but most of the people suffered a lot along the way before the miracle. And so it's not just, um, making everything sound rosy. But, uh, she was. She had a vision of Jesus while she was on the floor. She, uh, she had fallen out of a wheelchair. She, she had no way she could get back up, and she was in great pain. She had a vision of Jesus who came and touched the different parts of her body as they were healed. And uh, her, her kids were, were due to visit her later that day. And when they came in, she, you know, the, the wheelchair was just sitting there in front of the door. And they were like, what happened? And she walks in from the other room, walking. And they're like, mom? <laughs> and her doctors had the same reaction. This one was thoroughly medically documented. It, and, and that, I think, was what grabbed me, is these weren't just short-term things. These were long-term interactions and it and, and your book is filled with story after story after story it's it's one anecdote right after the other where you're you do a really nice job of laying the groundwork answering questions that people have beforehand to kind of head it off at the past like what about this what, what if they weren't really sick what if this happened and you you do a great job of showing no there's doctor after doctor that have have shown this, there's research, there's all these behind it, um, which I found encouraging because you are a world-class researcher. You are a person who, whom uh, many people trust to give a really balanced view. And I thought you did. Even there were times where you talk about someone who healed people, but then their life fell apart themselves. And you don't, you don't spare that. You don't, I, I appreciate that because you don't try to make people look better than they are. And yet you're also not unwilling to hit people that some would just consider controversial because they may have a healing ministry of some sort, or at least historically. So, so you hit that and you do justice to it. But let, let's talk for a moment here on these, these things. The, the dead being raised. I mean, some people would say, really? 
really that's what's occurring. And you're saying, yes, we have documented evidence of individual after individual that's been there. Why is there still so much, though, hostility? And again, I know you talk about Hume and how he is, that his thought processes have, have really permeated. But there's also a lot of, the word that comes to my mind is chicanery, but that's a kind of an old word, yeah. you know, um, people who falsify the information. I, I don't remember if you, you, you probably haven't seen it, but there was the movie uh, Man in the Moon about Andy Kaufman and he goes to get healed and he, he goes to the Philippines cause he, he has cancer and he sees, he really believes in this and he gets in there and he sees that it's all fake. Everything is fake. And we know that of people, people have, have really lost their faith because of it. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, God still does it. Mm-hmm. So what, what are we to make of this world in which we live where there is so much skepticism? How do we go about even talking about these? And should we seek the miraculous from God? <laughs> yes, we we can we can pray to God for it. Uh, there's so many places I could go with this. First, just to say, fraud does occur, uh, especially in those ministries where people are depending on donor funds. Um, mm. They have more reason to falsify something, or they want attention, or something like that. But you don't throw out the real. Real money just because some money is counterfeit. But going back, should we expect a miracle? In Acts chapter 4, where a disabled man has been healed and the authorities try to shut down Peter and John and, and forbid them to preach anymore, they go back and they share this with the, the congregation of all, the assembly of all the believers in Jesus and they say, uh, Let's pray. And they pray to God, God, please continue to grant your servants boldness by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And it says in 431, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. And so there is a place for that. Now, praying that God will do miracles to bring honor to his name is not necessarily the same thing as praying for this miracle or that miracle. And yet we do see, for example, in Mark, we see a contrast in Mark chapter 10. You have James and John who come to Jesus and they say, uh, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Jesus says, what do you want to ask? <laughs> mm-hmm. And they say, well, we want, we want to sit on e- either side of you in your kingdom. And Jesus says, you really don't want that. You don't know what it's going to cost. Mm-hmm. Are you able to share my cup? And they said, oh, sure we are. And no, they weren't. But a little bit later, you've got Bartimaeus, who comes to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Mm-hmm. And Jesus grants it. It's not selfish to pray for healing. But we also need to keep in mind, if God did something all the time, we wouldn't consider it special divine action. We wouldn't consider it a miracle. We would consider it regular divine action. People would say, well, it's just something when you use this formula or whatever, it just naturally occurs. It's something from your brain or whatever. Um, So there are settings where it happens regularly on the cutting edge of evangelism. In other settings, it doesn't happen all the time. 
but when Jesus did these, these signs, they were signs of the kingdom. They were a foretaste of the coming kingdom. They weren't the consummation of the kingdom. People still die. People still suffer in, until the consummation of the kingdom. But whenever God heals anybody, or, or God does something unusual, extraordinary, special divine action for any of us, it's, it's, it's a gift to all of us because it's a reminder that God hasn't forgotten his promise of a day when there's not going to be any more sickness, there's not going to be any more death. God is going to wipe away all tears from our eyes and all things will be made new. What do we do when God doesn't heal? In the Gospels, we sometimes see desperate people who wouldn't take no for an answer. Uh, like mm -hmm. the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7, Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, who says, you know, G Jesus says, it's not, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. <laughs> now, she could have responded to that, like, how dare you compare me with a dog? You know, that was at least as offensive back then as it is today. Uh, I used to think it was, well, you know, the word he uses means a little doggy, but it didn't matter. It was still highly offensive. And so, but instead she humbles herself and she just says, okay, I'm, I'm like a little dog under the table, but you know, there's always leftovers. There are always scraps that the children, children drop. You have so much power. All I need is a scrap, <laughs> you know, with the, the centurion servant, uh, in, in Matthew 8, 5 to 13, we have Jesus saying, well, actually, the translations don't always bring this out, but most likely it's worded like this, shall I come and heal him? Don't, you know, I'm not supposed to enter into a Gentile's home. And the centurion responds, you don't have to come. You just speak the word. I understand the principle of authority. I'm under authority. I'm backed by the authority of the Roman Empire. You are backed by the authority of God. You just speak the word and it will happen. And Jesus says, not even among my own people have I found such great faith. Your servant's healed. And so sometimes we need to hang in there and not just give up right away. But sometimes the answer is no. And you see that also in scripture. You see that again in Mark chapter 14, Jesus has been, has been saying all things are possible with God. He says that back in Mark 10. Um, elsewhere, he says nothing should be impossible with God. You know, you just have a mustard seed. It's enough. You could even move mountains. So in Mark 14, he's praying at Gethsemane and he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Please take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the Father's will was not to take the cup from him. Because for the sake of the salvation of the world, Jesus needed to go through the cross. He needed to drink that cup. And sometimes God will use our suffering, our disability in one sense to bring him glory in other ways and i can't say why it happens this way with this person in this way with that person i can say there are a lot of different views on that but even the people who say everybody who has enough faith will get healed 
not everybody in their ministry normally gets healed unless, again, they're on the cutting edge of evangelism, groundbreaking evangelism. Um, some people see it a lot more than others. Some people have, well, just like we have different gifts. I mean, my gift is more in the area of teaching. Um, and I have some some other gifts in in more local settings. But um, uh, by the way, speaking of gifts, I should mention that my cessationist friends, most of them don't deny that God does miracles. They say God is God. He can do whatever he wants to. So they'll say, you just don't expect it all the time. I'm not sure it happened all the time in the first century either. Otherwise, um, the original apostles would still all be with us. <laughs> I told you it would be a fascinating conversation. And didn't I, didn't I say that he's one of the smartest people you would ever encounter? I mean, who reads Plato at 13 years of age? I'm not talking about Play-Doh that you, <laughs> you shape with your hands, but Plato, the philosopher. I mean, come on. But I'm grateful that an encounter with the Holy Spirit changed him and set him on the path to scholarship. I'm grateful for men and women like that. I love the fact that God uses all kinds of people, scholars, plumbers, warehouse workers, teachers, stay-at-home parents, lawyers, landscapers, bricklayers, electricians, and the list goes on and on and on. God's kingdom is very diverse, and we need every single person. We need guys like him who can do the research to help strengthen and equip us, especially when it comes to understanding the miraculous. Hearsay is one thing, but documented miracles supported by respected medical professionals, that's something else entirely. And it's a tremendous encouragement and a balm to my soul. It's incredible to me that the book started because he was researching biblical miracles and he discovered story after story of God working the miraculous today. I love that. Miracles are the special work of God in the world, and they still do happen today. This book from Dr. Keener sets out to show just how real they are, how documentable they are. It's just the beginning of our conversation. I would invite you to tune in next week as we continue this discussion, as we talk about the miraculous, what it is, what it's not, and what do we do when miracles don't happen. It's an encouraging and challenging conversation but one I guarantee is going to encourage your heart and bless your soul. I want to thank you for joining me for this deep conversation. And would you please help us by subscribing and leaving a review on Apple podcast or wherever you listen, when you do it, it actually helps us to water the faith of more people. We need people like you to spread the word about conversations like this one. We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments about the show, check us out on our Facebook page or our Instagram account and feel free to drop us a line. Much thanks to our Apollos Water team of Kevin, Melissa, Eliana, and Rebecca. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody. Stay watered, everybody.